are, the last few weeks, we have been going through the book of Ephesians. The uh, book of Ephesians is, um, uh, it, it's a great book for us to look at who we are in Christ. And um, we have talked about Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to put on the new you. And, um, and putting on the new you is probably not what we probably would have thought if we hadn't been talking about this series. Um, uh, when we talk about putting on the new you, we talk about putting on our identity. And we said in the last couple of weeks that we are a family of worshipers. And we are servants, and we are called to worship God, and we are called to be missionaries, and we're called to learn to walk in His ways. So a family of missionary servants called to worship God and learn to walk in His ways. Five things that we've been talking about that, that, um, that mark who we are in Christ. And we said that um, the things that we are come directly from who God is. Because God is our Father, we then are sons and daughters. And because we are sons and daughters, we are family together and we live as family. Because Jesus has given us the spirit to teach us all things, then we are learners. And we're not just learners of knowledge, but we learn to do, to obey, to, uh, like the Great Commission says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Today, we're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus is our peace. And because Jesus is our peace, we are worshipers. From the very beginning of time, God created us to worship, right? In the, in the garden, God gave man three things. He gave man sexuality and said, it's not good for a man to be alone. And so he gave us companionship. Um, he gave man work and said, you're to, to subdue the earth. Um, and he gave man his breath, his very breath, so that as we breathe in and breathe out, we are breathing him in. We are breathing him out. We are worshiping him. We are ascribing worth. The, the idea of worship is, is um, in the old English, um, you, you take the, the two words uh, worth and ship, and it became worship. It's ascribing worth. In the Greek, the idea is you're kissing the ground. It's literally someone who is of such value and such importance that you would fall down before them. And so that's why in, in the Old Testament, you see images of, of people who are, are before the throne room of God. And as they stand before God, they fall on their face. And one said, woe is me for I am undone, for I am an unclean man of unclean lips and from a people with unclean hands and unclean lips. And I have seen the King of Kings. And that is appropriate act of worship. But in Ephesians, when, he, when Paul is talking about us as worshipers, he's not talking about just the act of worship, and he's not just calling us to respond in worship. He is saying who you are, like the essence of who you are, your identity is that you are a worshiper. And we've talked about the last couple of weeks how like our theology, what we believe about what, who God is, defines our our very identity, who we are in Christ. And then who we are in Christ determines what it is that we do. So what we do comes from who we believe we are, and who we believe we are comes from who we think God is. And everybody worships because we were created to worship. It's, it's part of who we are. And, and uh, Tim Keller said it this way, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then 
um, they are where you tap real meaning in life and they will never be enough and never, you'll never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when the time that comes and age starts to showing, you will die a million deaths before those things finally leave you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need even more power in order to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect and, and being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. There are default settings. We are created to worship and we will worship something. It, it, it's why John Calvin said hundreds of years ago, our hearts are little idol factories because if we're not worshiping God, we will automatically worship something else. And so it's, it's who we are to who we are created to be. And so in Ephesians chapter two, when, when Paul begins describing to us, and again, he separates out the indicative from the imperative. The indicative is, who, this is who you are in Christ. And then the imperative is on the back of the book. It's like, because this is who you are, then this is what you do. And so what we've been trying to do in this series is we've been trying to look at the indicative, this is who you are, and then go straight to the imperative so those two don't get separated. Because if we separate the indicative from the imperative and we say, here, just go do this, then we're teaching people to be moralistic and we're teaching people to try to be good and we're not teaching people to live from who they are and to live out the good news that we are in Christ. So in Ephesians chapter two, it says this in verse 11, therefore, remember, at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers in the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. When, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if any of you um, listened to AM radio uh, over the years uh, or, or tuned in and, and heard uh, Garrison Keillor tell different stories, right? He's not on the air anymore, but, but some of his stuff is, is uh, still around. There's a, a story that he told um, uh, about, you know, he tells these stories about Lake Wobegon, right? Um, and so there's this story that he told about uh, a girl who grew up in a very prim and proper um, household in Lake Wobegon. Her name was Lydia. And Lydia, after she graduated from high school, said, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm going to move away and I'm going to move to New Orleans and I am going to let my hair down and I'm going to do all the things I was never allowed to do in my very staid prim and proper household. And uh, she went off and, and she began to kind of delve into a very... A various number of, of vices, and she met a man, and this man made her feel all the things she'd always wanted to feel, accepted and lovely and, and wanted, and, and so um, she began to, to pursue those vices with him, and they decided to move in together, and when they moved in together, she began to realize that these vices were not just something he enjoyed, these vices controlled him, and that he was unable to kind of break free from being able to to live not controlled by these things and he couldn't hold a job and he stayed drunk most of the time and her job became cleaning up the bottles that, that he left as he passed out on the couch. And so after a couple months of this, she finally one, one day decided she was gonna leave a, a month's rent on the TV and then sneak out while he was passed out on the couch and head to the bus station. And so she headed to the bus station wondering, where will I go? And she thought, well, I might as well go home. And so when she went home, she experienced something that maybe some of you guys have experienced, which is, um, have you ever gone home to a place that you grew up and, and you didn't feel like you were at home? Uh, maybe you connected with some people that you worked at a job with and, and you never felt, you felt like you belonged with them before and now you don't. 
Well, she got home and she saw the looks that people gave her and the whispers behind her back of her days of ill repute. And so um, she began to feel like, man, I, I don't belong here. I'm a stranger in my own house. I'm an alien. I'm, I'm separated from what I once experienced here. And as Thanksgiving came, she, she was there with the family and the family began to treat her oddly and, and um, the, the extended family kind of gave her these looks and they talked behind her back. And so as the, the table was cleared and desserts were coming out, she snuck out of the dining room and went into the living room and, and there was the, the mantle with all kinds of things that were she remembered from being a child. And as she ran her hand down the mantle, she came to something she didn't expect, which is in the middle, there was something that she had never seen before. It was a, a framed picture and it was a picture of her from her senior year of high school. And and her dad had taken a label and with his Remington typewriter had typed out the words, Our Lydia. And it was in the center of the mantle. And she stood there feeling weird at first because she had been labeled in her own household. And, and it was such a strange thing. But then she realized what it was her dad was doing. Her dad was saying, no matter where she's gone, no matter what she's done, no matter how much you're whispering behind our back, she's ours. And she belongs here. And those things were like diamonds for her. They, it, was, it was like precious jewels to be, know, I have a place here. I belong here. When, when Paul begins to talk about who we were, and he, he, this movement, he basically, his, his outline, if you will, is he kind of uses time at one time, but now, so then. That's kind of how he uses this, this, this stretch of scripture. At one time, you were aliens. You were separated. You were other. You were outside. You were. Um, you didn't belong here. Um, and 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 he says he says this. Um, and it basically unpacks um, to th that we are to remember the the nature of our past and we're to remember the consequences of our past. Um, the nature of our past. At one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision. And and the idea of of being in the flesh is not like he wants to remind them of their Gentileness as much as he wants to say, you were in the flesh and not in Christ. Um, and so he says, you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, which is uh, what the circumcision, the Jewish people, um, like they're also in the flesh, but they, they just happen to have carved up flesh. And, and he's like, so it's, it's, um, uh, they're, they're not better than you. They're in the flesh and not in Christ. Um, but they, are, they, are, uh, they call you the uncircumcision. So re remember that's who your nature was. And remember the consequences that you were separated from Christ. You were alienated. You were an I illegal alien from the commonwealth, if you will, of Israel. You were strangers. And, and strangers to the covenant of promise, you had no hope and no direction. You were without God in this world. You were far off. And he says, this is what I want you to remember about who you were, that you were separated. And, and, and then he says, but now, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came to preach peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So he, he, begins, he says, look, this is who you were at one time. 
But now you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why by the blood of Christ? I mean, you just go back to Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were in this perfect place and they chose to, to sin. And when they chose to sin, God had said very clearly, on the day that you eat, you will die. And, and they did. They began to be separated from God. They, they began to die on that day. And, and God took a lamb. And we don't think about this a lot because we, like, we, we don't necessarily raise animals. Um, some people maybe do. Um, uh, if we do raise animals, they're cats and dogs and things like that. Like, he takes a lamb that these two people had named. Right? Think of it that way. Like, these two people had named all the animals. This lamb was not just livestock at a at farm. This lamb was essentially their pet. And he decides he's going to slaughter this lamb. Now imagine the weightiness and the heaviness and the sadness you would feel if I came to your house today and I took your dog and I made some clothes out of it, right? You go, wait, what? This is what God has done. He took this thing that they had named, that they had cared for, and he slaughtered it and made clothes for them. And then he said in Genesis 3.15 that I'm going to send um, uh, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And, and he begins to talk about the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And so all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, there's this hope and this promise of sin being covered. And, and there's also a sense of the heaviness of um, all sin deserves death. And, and we feel the weight of that. And so it says that, that, but now you are in Christ because you were once far off but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's the lamb that's taken away the sin of the world. For he himself is our peace and he has made us both one and has broken down his flesh of the dividing wall. Like what is, what is he talking about here? He says, Jesus is our peace. He unites us. It says that um, uh, he breaks down this dividing wall. Well, again, if, if you're thinking about um, uh, like, the dividing wall. The dividing wall would be something that, that people were used to seeing if they were used to going to the temple in Jerusalem. Anybody who lived in the ancient world would know the temple in Jerusalem was different than temples anywhere else. The temple in Jerusalem was built in a way that no other temple was really built. It was built in concentric circles. You had in the center, the Holy of Holies, and only one priest could go in there one time a year. And then outside of that was the holy place. And only a handful of priests could go in there. And then outside there was a courtyard and some, pretty much all the priests could go in there. And then outside there, the men could go. And then a couple steps down, there was the court of women. And the women could be in there because they were kind of looked at as like, that's the end of society. Um, but amazingly, after this plateau where the court of women was, there was a seven foot wall. And 14 more steps down, there was another plateau, and that's where Gentiles could be. Because Gentiles were clearly outside the covenant. The Jews looked at Gentiles, and they literally considered them a different mankind, like a different race, a superior race, almost as ironically as this is, like Hitler did when he was like, we are a supreme race. That's how the Jews thought of themselves. We are a separate kind of mankind, and we, we keep the outsiders out. And the Gentiles would, would be there looking up 14 steps and then a wall, then a plateau and five more steps. And, and they saw on this seven foot wall signs and the signs did not say like trespassers will be prosecuted. 
it said trespassers, Gentile trespassers will be executed. And so, so they would look up thinking, I want to be there. I want to be in God's presence. And there's this wall of hostility between me and God. And so it says that Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility, abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, like one mankind in place of two and making peace and might reconcile us both to God um, uh, in one body through the cross by killing that hostility. And he came and he preached peace. It's, it's literally the word gospeled. It's like, it's like they took gospel and made it a verb. He gospeled peace. He good-newsed peace. That's not something we're used to, to thinking about. But Jesus, Jesus gospeled peace to those who are far off. And you go, well, that makes perfect sense. Like people who are far from God need to hear the gospel. They need to hear that Jesus died as their substitute, that if they place their faith in him, they, they get to experience life with God. And, and they need to understand that the, the gospel and to preach the gospel to those who are far off makes perfect sense. But then it says he preached the gospel, he gospeled peace to those who were near. And that's because all of us, whether we're far from God or whether we're near, we need the gospel. We need to understand that the good news of the gospel, the redemption that we have, the blood of Jesus being poured out was, was not just so that we would like get our ticket punched and we get to go to heaven someday. The gospel is every day we get to enjoy God himself. God himself is the good news. And we get him, we get his spirit, we get life with him in this life and in the next. And so those who are far from him need the gospel. And those of us near need the gospel. And so Jesus preached the gospel to those who are far and those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so he, he talks about this access that we have. And it's, you can picture it like this, like it's, it's access into a throne room. It's like we are princes and princesses, and we have access, unfettered access into a throne room where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the, the, the Father who created all of the world, sits enthroned, and we have the ability to go in and out and not be stopped and not be executed because we have this boldness. We have access into God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And it says, so then, so again, at one time, but now, so then. And you're expecting, so then, like, all right, so you are these people that you are being, you are being built together as, as, as a house uh, of worship um, where God has, has, is reconciling us. You expect there's going to be activity here, but instead it says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You, you are no longer uh, para-oikoi, like you are no longer outside the house. Like why, why outside the house? Think about it. Jews were, would not allow a foreigner into their house. They would not eat with somebody who was a Gentile. Um, they, they had to stay outside the house. And so he says, you were outside the house. You, but now you are the house. You are in the house. You are the house. Um, he, says, he says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are no longer illegal aliens. You are, you are not even resident aliens. You're not naturalized citizens. You have been recreated to be 
citizens as if you've been given a new nationality and that nationality is in God through Christ. He says, he says you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Like what is the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right? It is his word. His word is given to us. It is, we have it because of the prophets and the apostles. <clears throat> he says, um, Christ Jesus himself being the uh, cornerstone. So the foundation is the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. Now remember, because he's used this idea of, of hostile wall, the, 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 he's, he's using this temple imagery. And so these are people who, they understand what the temple looked like. And Herod's buildings projects were amazing. And he had cornerstones, four cornerstones, that were each more than 40 feet long. And so when you think of a solid piece of stone, more than 40 feet long, shifted into place, it, like, okay, the foundation is the apostles and prophets. It's, it's what fills in everything that's not Jesus. And Jesus is here and here and here and here, and he's the biggest chunks, right? And so it says um, that Jesus is, is the cornerstone. Um, uh, and, and it says in, him, in whom the whole structure being joined together, now hold on to the word together because we're going to see it again, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The idea of us being worshipers and the idea of us having the Spirit and Jesus being our peace is something we experience together. If you look back through church history, in various seasons of church history, different creeds came out to address different problems that came up. Early on, people were asking questions about, like, all right, which books of the Bible can we trust? Because there's other writings that are coming out, and a couple hundred years after the, the, the last of this scripture was written, there were people writing things they called gospels, and they wrote them under names that weren't their own. And, and people were like, this is clearly not the same as the stuff that we have. How do we determine which part is our canon. And so they, they figured that out and they, they wrote some creeds. And then later on, there was a guy named Arius and Arius came along and he wrote a song and it was pretty catchy. And he said, there was a time when Christ was not. And they were like, wait a minute, there was never a time that Christ was not. And they began to hammer away at Christology and they began to figure out like, what do we believe about who Jesus is? And there was a guy named Athanasius and he was really good at summarizing all of their study. And so he wrote about basically what we know now that it wasn't God in a bod. It was fully God, fully man, the hypostatic union of Christ, that he was fully both. And so we began to understand those things. And over time, different things came up and different things were, were expressed in creedal things. And some of what's being looked at right now is our relationship to the Holy Spirit. Because at some point, somebody realized we've been teaching the Holy Spirit is primarily a personal thing. And we have now looked and seen all these places where the Holy Spirit in the New Testament acts differently than the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and Saul went out and did amazing things. In the Holy, the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, and Samson went out and slew a bunch of Philistines. In the New Testament, the Spirit seems to come on the corporate church gathered together. And the Spirit comes down in Pentecost corporately. And the Spirit says, set aside Paul and Silas for the work I have for them 
corporately. And this says the Spirit is building us together as a house of worship. That somehow there's something special about when we're together, that the Spirit works in a way for us together that He doesn't work in us individually. I'm not saying that the Spirit doesn't work individually. I'm saying that we might have put too much emphasis there and not looked enough at what He's doing corporately. And I think my own experience is um, there was a, a corporate experience of the Holy Spirit when uh, John Hanna um, read from James that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked and you can't even know your own heart. And, and I began to realize I am somehow believing that I am in the faith and I clearly do not have the Spirit. There was something that happened there. And a month later, there was something that happened that was different when I was alone and I was reading John 6 and saying, Lord, I, I get the disciples where they're coming from. Like Jesus said, are you guys going to leave me too? And they said, where? Where will we go? You have the words of life. And I remember saying, Jesus, you're it. And if you won't have me, I'm condemned already, but I have nowhere else to go but you. And there was a work of the Spirit that happened in me separately that was different than what happened to me corporately. I think we need to look at both and say there's something important that happens when we are together. And worship and, and being worshipers, we are more that together than we are just individually. Now, is it true that all of life is worship? Yes. Is it true that it's not just a slice of the pie, it's the whole pie? Yes. But maybe it's, it's, that's even the wrong analogy. Maybe it's, it's a multi-layer cake. And, and you slice in, and on the bottom, there's worship and mission and service and family and learning, right? right? It's a five-layer cake. And no matter where you cut into the cake, you hit it all, right? We are all that all the time. So it doesn't make, it, it, it makes perfect sense that if we are family and we are, that, that part of being family is also our worship and being worshipers is defined by our familyness. Our service is defined by our familyness, right? Our, our, our learning is defined by our familyness. All the, and all those other things, our learning is defined by our being worshipers. Everything is interconnected and we are all those things simultaneously. And because we are those things to, simultaneously, we are worshipers together. We are being joined together as a house of worship, as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so this is the indicative, right? This is because of who God is, because Jesus is our peace, because he has preached peace, because he has joined us together, he has made us into a house of worshipers. Then you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and he begins to unpack for us the imperative. So this is who you were, this is who you are, and because of who you are, in Ephesians 4, 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In futility of their minds, they are darkened and their understanding is alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. So he's saying like, hey, you are no longer aliens. We just read that, right? You're no longer outside the house. You are in the house. And so because you're in the house, don't act like Gentiles who are alienated, who are outside the house. They've become callous and they've given themselves up to the sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of iniquity. But this is not the way you learn Christ and you are in Christ, right? 
assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to you in the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed by the spirit of your mind. You are being built together as a house of worship. So it makes sense that you would be renovated in your mind and put on the new self, the new you, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth. He begins to, to say, look, I, I want to show you what this looks like in everyday life. I want you to see that, that worship impacts everything. It impacts, the, you worship with your honesty and you worship with your speech. You worship, and it says, don't be ang- in your anger, don't sin. You worship in your, in your conflict and your conflict resolution. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and give no opportunity to the, to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. So you, you worship with your work, and part of how you worship with your work is you are honest with your employer, and you don't steal from them, you don't take from them, you don't use their time uh, in a way that is, is not productive. Let no corrupt communication, no corrupt talking come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building up as it fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. You worship in the way that you speak, in the way that you build other people up. And then he gives the opposite of worship. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This is the opposite of worship. And what does the opposite of worship look like? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. None of that is worship. Everything's supposed to be worship. None of that is worship. And then he says what worship is. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Christ forgave you before you ever asked him. Christ forgave you. He was kind and loving and gentle towards you long before you were ever not his enemy. And so he says, this is the way that you worship. You worship in everything, everything you touch, everything you do, as you breathe in, as you breathe out, all of your life is worship and it should all be done together. Life together, life in worship, we are worshipers and we are worshiping in every single thing you can imagine, in our work, in our speech, in our conflict, in our relationships. And, and, and you go, all right, so what does that look like? Like, well, what it looks like is you begin to think about worship in everything you do. And if you're a guy who, man, you love the next greatest device, you're just constantly getting new devices, you begin to think like, what does it look like for me to worship with my devices? Do I need that many? Do I need them that often? Can I deploy my resources elsewhere? As, As you are driving, you're thinking about worship. And it's not like, what music can I listen to or what sermon can I turn on? It's like, how do I worship God when somebody cuts me off? right? I mean, because sometimes it doesn't look like worship, right? Uh, when you go to work and, and, and you're just killing time by the water cooler, you go, man, is that, what, is that what worship looks like? I don't think so. So what does worship look like at work? What does worship look like when you're a parent? How, how is it worship when you are talking to your kids, you're loving your kids, you're encouraging your kids, you're disciplining your kids? Like, is that worship? What, are you doing it? It's, and in every single thing. And then it's, it's to be able to do that together and look at each other and say, like, hey, I know you're trying to do a life of worship, but um, I saw this. <laughs> that didn't really look like worship. Um, how do we begin to worship together there, right? And, and that's, that's what life together looks like. And that's what life being built together as temples of worship looks like. I, I mean, imagine, I, I, I've never been to very many churches where I saw worship like that. 
right? I mean, most churches, people think about church as worship, and it's like 45 minutes on Sunday, right? They, they think I, we go to a worship service. <laughs> I got a phone call last week. This girl calls up and she says, um, yeah, I was wondering if I could rent your chapel for, uh, for uh, a wedding. And I was like, uh, we're called Mercy Chapel, but we don't have a chapel. We rent a building. Oh, all right. So could one of your ministers do the, uh, do the wedding? Uh, I was like, well, we're all bivocational. She's like, what kind of chapel is this? You don't, you, you, you uh, uh, don't have a building. You don't have people to marry people. Um, and, uh, and I was trying to explain, like, we're a church. And she's like, well, then call yourself a church. <laughs> um, and I'm like, she had expectations about what chapel meant. Um, and, uh, and, and I go, all right, well, maybe that's, you know, reasonable. Um, but, but we all have expectations about what worship looks like. Sometimes people think worship is a service. Some people think worship is just the music right? Some people think, you know, worship is, is their private, personal quiet time. That people have different ideas, and the idea is that all of life is worship. We are built as a temple together to be a house of worship, that God inhabits us, and all of our life is touched by that. I mean, imagine just personally what it would look like if all of your life began to be permeated by worship together, right? How different would it be? What would it look like in the way that you interface with your family and with your friends? What would it look like in the way that you, in, in, you're with your neighbors? Speaking of neighbors, Halloween's coming, right? Be home. Give the best candy. Like, be the people who are there to meet your neighbors. One time a year, they come to your house. Greet them. Love them. Give them good stuff. And you won't get eggs. Um, yeah, maybe that's an East Coast thing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, they're coming to us. So let's greet them and be ready to, to love their children, right? Um, what does it look like for us to do everything as an act of worship? What does it look like if, if our city began to see a group of worshipers, that it was in everything, I mean, you think about like um, uh, those of you who grew up with the Beatles, you remember John Lennon saying that the, uh, in Imagine, the end of religion is going to bring peace, right? Today, pluralism says the blend of religion brings peace. Like it's all the same thing. Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, just slam it all together. It doesn't matter. Like if we can just stick it all together, it'll bring peace. It doesn't, right? But, but people have this idea and, and they haven't seen what Jesus bringing peace to us looks like in the way that we worship in everyday things. And when they begin to see us worship in everyday things, they begin to go, wait, that's different than what I expected. That's not, that's not what I knew about Christianity. I want to know more about that. Our worship of God together. When, when, when Jesus said, by this will all men know you're my disciples, by your love one for another, that's part of our sacrifice of worship, the way that we love each other, the way that we do life together, the way that we worship together. As people see us worship corporately, there's a whole book called uh, um, Missional Worship um, that, that is like, we come together to worship and unbelieving people can come in and they can see something, they see something that's different, hopefully, but they should see life in worship every single day, not just in our corporate gathering. And so let's look at like, how that looks. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to keep looking at our identities, that we are a family of missionary servants called to worship God 
and to walk in his ways, to, to learn to walk in his ways. Those, those five identities are, are who we say we are, and, and then they will define what we do. And then we're going to begin looking at how do we start doing things together? How do we begin worshiping together? How do we begin learning together? How do we begin serving together? How do we begin doing all of these things? And, and some of that might be uncomfortable for you guys, um, because you're not used to like, all right, I need to carve out time for my body, my family. We are one body. We are one mankind. We are one building that God is building together. And so we have to figure out like, how do I lay down the things I'm used to doing to sacrifice to do the thing? And it's a sacrifice of praise and worship. It is not a sacrifice of like, just like self-sacrifice and I'm, I'm giving up something. It's you are getting something far more than what you will be giving up as we begin to connect together. So let's, let's um, pray about that, be thinking about that, talking about that. How do we live life of worship together? Because it's not just what we do, it is who we are.